Hi there, I'm Jake Humphrey and you're listening to High Performance, our conversation for you every single week. And I'm very excited to announce that this is the first in a series of High Performance CEO conversations. This CEO series is going to reveal the truth about leadership with top CEOs from some of the biggest businesses in the country. We will investigate how they define, create and maintain culture. We're going to delve into the setbacks, the self-belief and the sacrifice. This is top CEOs disarmed, deeply honest and completely vulnerable. Today, we welcome the CEO of Aviva, Amanda Blanc. You have to have the right attitude because I do not want to work with people who are poorly behaved or just can't do it. I mean, obviously, you have to have some capability. If you're the finance director, then you probably have to do know quite a bit about numbers. But really, you know, it is about have you got the right core values and behaviours to be able to do a good job. And then you build out from there. I actually felt quite offended by that. I don't think that that was acceptable. And we've done quite a lot of work with our teams uh, around that to make sure that we get the, the right behavior. We will not not get it right. Definitely not 100% of the time. But I think we're getting better at, at calling it out when you, when you see it. I'm here for a reason, because I've got something to add. Because I am from a different background, because I have been successful, because I, I know what, you know, I know what good looks like and I know I can help and I'm prepared to speak up. Could I do a better job of that? Yeah, I think I probably could. I think I'm probably a good leader. I think I'm probably a good communicator. I think I probably know what needs to be done. And by the way, I do get shit done. You know what, in so many ways, Amanda Blanc is the perfect person to launch our high performance CEO series because she started from the bottom and she worked her way up. She didn't come from a family that had experience working in industry. In fact, she was from the Rhonda Valley. She came from a mining family. She talks about that really emotionally on this podcast. And she started at the bottom in the business world and she worked her way up and she grafted and she made mistakes and she sacrificed. And you will hear about all of those things over the next hour or so. It's a really brilliant conversation with Amanda and I want it to be so inspiring to so many people. So I hope that this is an episode that you really enjoy. And no matter what your line of work, what your industry, where you are in your career, there's so much that you can learn from the things that Amanda is going to share. And you know what, this CEO series of the High Performance Podcast is brought to you by PwC. Now you may be wondering, why PwC? Well, they often set the bar for leadership, culture, inclusion, and the future of work, which are all things that we talk about so often here on High Performance. We also talk about trust, and their purpose is to build trust and solve those really crucial problems for their people and for their customers. And their global strategy, the new equation, is bringing this to life for everybody. And the way they're doing it is they're combining technology with human ingenuity, passion, and experience and they work with organizations to deliver more intelligent sustained outcomes so thank you so much for being part of this special series of interviews here on high performance i know people are going to get so much from them right here we go then the ceo of aviva amanda blanc on the high performance podcast well amanda let's start with our opening question what does high performance mean to you yeah. So, I, I mean, obviously that's a brilliant question and the purpose of the podcast. And it's something I give an awful lot of thought to um, in my job. And I think sometimes you can overplay these things. But for me, high performance is about execution. Because, you know, I, I, I sometimes think that you can have all these glamorous strategies and these wonderful things and they all sound very clever and 
sort of convoluted, but actually at the end of the day, you can have a pretty average strategy, but if you execute it really well, that can deliver really high performance. And so, um, you know, I, I've always been an execution queen. Um, my team will always say it's always about execu execution, execution, execution. So I'm going to stick with that, Jake. I think that that, that, that feels good to me. <laughs> an execution queen. It sounds far more sinister than it actually is. Let's talk about that then, because I think this is really helpful for the people listening to this, whether they're CEOs like you, whether they're entrepreneurs just starting out, whether they're teachers working with children, whether they're parents trying to get their children to do a certain thing. What is the secret to carrying out execution in a really effective way? So I think it has to start with real clarity of message. So like for me, um, two years ago when I came here, you know, within four weeks of being here, I stood on the stage. Well, actually it was a virtual stage because we were in the middle of COVID and laid out what we thought the plan for review was going to be. And it was really simple. It was just three things, but it was three things that investors could get behind, three things that, you know, our colleagues could get behind, the board could get behind. And so that clarity is really important. I, I think that, you know, for, for me anyway, every single person in this organization needs to be able to understand what the strategy actually is and, you know, and what, what good looks like. So you start there and then it's about breaking it down into the, the sort of component parts of what needs to be done. And again, you know, a real old fashioned statement, I know, but what gets measured gets done. So, you know, if it's diversity targets, if it's top line targets, if it's profit targets, if it's, you know, CO2 emissions, we measure that and we make sure that we're on track to really deliver. And, you know, that's, it, it's not simple, obviously, but it is just about real focus on those things. So tell us then your own origin story, uh, Amanda, as a girl from the Rhonda Valley is able to stand up in front of a room full of, you know, of, uh, of thousands of people and deliver with such clarity that kind of message. So yes, Rhonda Valley, right? You know, both my grandparents were miners and my grandfather went down the mine at the age of 14 and he retired at the age of 60. He died at the age of 99 and a half, which I think is incredible. So I think there's a little bit of that Rhonda Valley resilience in there, which if you're going to stand up in front of thousands of people and deliver something, you have to have that. But, but the key thing for me, I think, honestly, was just totally in the upbringing, like my mum and dad and the way that everything was, just the way we were brought up. So I went to Sunday school and, you know, it wasn't so much about the religion. It was just about what everybody did and everybody went to Sunday school. And at Sunday school, it was about performance. You would, we would, you know, we would have concerts. I would play the piano. I would sing. I would do a recitation. And honestly, I think that I look back now at the age of, I, I don't know, I would have been three, four, five, six, start, start to do that until I was probably 13 or 14, until obviously it becomes very uncool to do those sort of things. And it, that has stood, stood me in such good stead. You know, I'm not saying that when I stand up on that stage, I will be, you know, nervous. I will be thinking about what questions we could get asked, but I will always draw from that experience of always having done it. And I think that makes such a big difference. So tell us what was happening in that environment then when they see that young girl standing up on stage and doing the piano recital or singing in front of the group. What kind of messages were you hearing from your parents and your grandparents and the wider community? Yeah, I mean, it was all about family. I mean, you know, in Wales, and even if it wasn't your direct family, the community was the family. 
both my grandparents were very actively involved in my upbringing. You know, my mum worked in the local shop and in the local factory. My dad um, was more of a salesperson. He was traveling all, all over the place. So that environment was really strong, but also it was really tough. If you think about the time that I was growing up, the miners' strikes and, the, you know, effectively the, that whole Welsh community was falling apart because the, everybody was employed either in the mine or in, in delivery of a service that delivered to the mine. And so when that stri the strikes happened in the sort of early 80s, you know, my, my abiding memory is just of how difficult that really was and it, collecting money for the miners and, you know, putting cans of meat and corned beef and and soup on the door so that people could collect. And it was really, really tough. But there was always a smile. There was always a song. There was always a performance. And you just felt safe. You know, you just felt like it was a fantastic environment to grow up in. And I wouldn't change it. I really wouldn't change it for the world, you know. Like the comprehensive school I went to was like really an average school. There was no real aspiration. There was lots of music. There was lots of happiness. There was lots of fun. There was lots of friends. And I just look back at that and I just think it was just an amazing upbringing. And, you know, um, very different, I think, to, you know, what my children have been brought up to, for sure. So what characteristics then, as a leader now, as the head of the family, if you like, at Aviva, would you seek to take from those experiences and replicate in, in the corporate world? There are some things that you've learned, which is, you know, you do need to transform yourself. Otherwise, you will be transformed. If you think about that environment, it was sort of fairly obvious that coal was coming to the end of its days, you know, the economics of it and everything else. And But the community didn't transform itself. And so I think that as a consequence of that, if you were to go to the Rhondda Valley today, you know, there really isn't any industry. There really isn't isn't much going on. And so I think that's the thing that I learned that you should do that didn't happen. And then there's the resilience you know, I think you do have to be super resilient in that environment. And as a CEO, I mean, it is all about resilience because you are constantly reviewed. I mean, you know, if if somebody writes something about Aviva, whether it's the Mail Online or the Financial Times, if you dare to look at the comments below the line, which, by the way, I'd strongly never recommend doing, I'm sure you don't yourself, you know, it's always really horrible or really critical. And you sort of never, if you took that too much to heart, you you sort of wouldn't get up, you know, you'd sort of think, well, why bother? I don't want to be Christmas. So you've got to be able to take feedback and be resilient, I think. And how have you learned the lesson about not looking at those comments? A lot of people learn that lesson through looking at them and being affected. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I, I used to look at them all the time because you'd want to know how something had landed. And, you know, you so you read the piece and often, of course, the journalist understands, you know, what's going on and they, you can give them context. But but the, the sort of readers don't don't always understand that. But then when you look below the line and you see, you know, there was often a comment about, you know, what I was wearing or my hair or my makeup or, you know, my background or something. Like, and, and then you sort of think, actually, that's really not adding anything to my understanding of whether or not, you know, that had gone well or not. And then when you speak to the journalists themselves and they say to you, oh, we never look below the line, <laughs> you know, and, and you sort of think, well, OK, if they don't look below the line and they're writing the pieces, then, you know, I, I guess I'm not going to do that either. The thing is, though, I think your story is a really good example about how we get things wrong so often. So someone could look at this with no understanding and go, 
Um, Amanda Blanc, what on earth does she know about running Aviva? Because she grew up in the valleys in South Wales and she's female and there's hardly any female CEOs in, in FTSE 100 businesses. But actually the conversation we've had for the last 10 minutes is that the very reason you're sitting having this conversation with us is because of the upbringing in the valleys, not in spite of it. And I, and I, I sort of think back to, you know, you just said there's really been no recovery there since Margaret Thatcher basically declared war really on, on the mines and on mining. Um, and it, you can reflect on that and say, actually, from an environmental perspective, maybe it was the right thing to, to stop mining in the way that we were. However, it's about the way you deliver the message. It's about the way you treat those people. It's about the way you look after people. And quite honestly, it was brutal. So I wonder whether your style of management was also inspired by the fact that you saw your people, your wonderful people that you've just spoken about, being treated quite brutally. I mean, I, I think, Jake, that's absolutely right. And not just there, but all of your experiences through your career, you always th you always look at who does something well and who does something not so well. And I often think that you learn a lot more from people who don't do things well than you do from the people that do it brilliantly. And, you know, if you look at there will always be tough decisions as a CEO. You know, there will be people that just don't fit anymore. There will be parts of the business. You know, we have had to sell seven businesses over the last two years that Aviva owned in France and Italy and Poland because we needed to refocus the business on the markets that we felt we could be successful. Those weren't bad people. And so when you deliver the message that, you know, we need to make this decision, you need to deliver it with care and with thoughtfulness. And, you know, you talk about there will be better owners for you than Aviva. There's better ways of doing it. And I think that's right. You don't have to do things in a horrible way. You really don't. You can be really tough. And, you know, my team will tell you that I can be really tough to work for. I'm re relentless and demanding. But at the same time, you can do it with a smile on your face and you can do it in a nice way. And I think that, you know, that whole experience at that time, it was brutal. But, you know, just the way things can be done, you know, it leaves a very, I mean, even today, you know, it's still talked about. So, so you know, it's harsh, really harsh. Where did the belief come from? So you're, you're, you're living in Wales, you end up at university, you go from university to taking jobs. And like, was there a moment where you thought, I could really make something out of my life? I don't need to just follow the path that, that, that maybe other people feel is laid out in front of them when they, when they come from where I come from. Was there a person, a period, a moment where you thought, life can be incredible if I really want it to be? There, there was no one moment. I think the belief came from my parents which was always, you know, about pushing you out, out there and, and making sure that you got the most out of everything that you did. So they were not ambitious for me, but they were never going to let anything sort of hold you back. So I think that was, that was sort of, you were born with that. I think the moment where I sort of knew that it could, from a career perspective, that it could be, you know, better was when I got that. Somebody put, I was sort of double promoted at the age of 28. And it was that job I talked about in commercial union in Leicester, where I was the branch manager and I was 20, 28, 29. I was basically the youngest and first female person to do that job. And you walk into this office with 300 people and, you know, it was so daunting, but I, it was at that point you thought, actually, I could really make something out of this. I could, I, I'm really good at this leadership thing. It's often said, though, Amanda, that for you to almost be that visionary, to look 20, 30 years into the future and see how a company or a community needs to evolve, that there's three stages. That the first stage is people will ridicule the new idea, then they'll oppose it before they'll eventually come to accept it as self-evident. So how do you 
do that and almost retain that sense of dignity, that kindness, that humanity, when you're proposing ideas that people just can't see and find it difficult to comprehend? I think the best example of this is if you think about the net zero debate and, um, you know, climate change. So first of all, you know, you, you start from a position of everybody denies that it's a thing. You know, this is ridiculous. You know, this is not a thing. We had a hot summer in 1977. You know, these things are going to happen. And, and, and I think the way to get around all of that is through facts and through actually talking people through your rationale and why you think it's important. So, you know, as Aviva, as a company that has been alive for 325 years, I can't just think about the next quarter. I mean, the FTSE is about the next quarter, right? You know, so we'll have report, we'll have results next week, and then we'll have results in November, and then we'll have another set of results in March next year. And it, but you, but I, as the CEO, have to think much further ahead than that in what we invest in, in the businesses that we invest in, you know, we're leveling up across the UK, for example. We are one of the biggest investors in UK infrastructure. If we simply thought about, you know, the next quarter, we wouldn't get there. And, and people do ridicule. Well, you know, I mean, these climate change companies, all these new ideas, these, I mean, I can remember when um, the wind turbines went up first in the Rhondda Valley, actually, you know, and they went up in the forest, which was like above, my dad could see it from his house. And oh my gosh, I mean, he was like, those bloody things, they ruined my view. You know, this is absolutely terrible. Um, yeah, and that was, I don't know, 15, maybe more years ago. But now, today, you see that they are actually supplying a significant amount of energy into that community and wider. And they're, so, you know, they're making a massive difference in this energy crisis that we're in today. So I think, you know, you have to go through those various stages to get people, to get people into it. But facts usually make a big difference. So let's talk about the the transition then from growing up in Wales to ending up where you are now. I know that when you when you left university, you had two job offers and you took the harder option. Can you explain to us why the job that you took was the harder option? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I left university. I did a degree in history, which my children laugh at me about now. You know, they're like, what do you know about history? Um, but it was a means to an end. You know, you sort of finished and then it was like, OK, what am I going to do? And yeah, I got two job offers, one with Mid Glamorgan County Council and one with actually Commercial Union, which was, you know, one of the founding companies of Aviva. So it, I'm st- I've am i sort of ended up here where I started. Um and it would have been so easy, wouldn't it, to stay at home, you know, live with my mum and dad, get my washing done, um, stay in the community where you're very safe. But I decided not to. I decided to take the job with Commercial Union in Luton, Luton branch. And, you know, I remember turning up on that very first day, um, uh, you know, living in a bed and breakfast. I mean, I'd never experienced anything like that in my life. It was like, you know, what on earth is going on? And you turn up and you learn about insurance. And then you think, actually, this is really a fantastic industry to be in. And I'm going to, you know, I'm I'm quite enjoying this, but it was, you know, it wasn't the easiest decision to take. It would have been much easier to stay at home. So why did you take it then? If I reflect back on my career, I, I just, I do like the hard option. You know, coming here two years ago was not the easy option. You've said that in quite a, quite an easy way that I always take the, the harder option, but take us into your head when you're making those decisions and help us understand why that's the case. I think, you know, when I'm going through this, it's basically, you know, well, what is, what, what could be the likely outcomes here? Um, so you, you start to think about, you know, you've got a reputation where you, which I've built up over sort of 30 years of being, um, being in business, but then you get the opportunity to actually fix something 
which you inherently believe is fantastic, but has been badly managed or badly led or bad decisions have been taken. And you think, actually, do you know what? I, I could do a better job than that. And then you have to have a bit of confidence. So my head is thinking, could I do a better job than that? Yeah, I think I probably could. I think I'm probably a good leader. I think I'm probably a good communicator. I think I probably know what needs to be done. And by the way, I do get shit done. So I, I sort of, I thought, actually, I think, I think I could do it. I think I really could. And then you have to back yourself. And of course, you know, you've got people around you who will back you. My husband, you know, my family, and, you know, they're, they're always so supportive and, I think with that support and your own confidence, and you, you have to have a bit of arrogance. You know, you have to think I can do it, even though countless others have failed. Um, and then you just get on with it, and you put yourself out there. But you've got to, you know, you've got to have a bit, bit of confidence. I think. But there's a really interesting distinction there between uh, that in a number of those examples that you've just offered us, Amanda. Around some people would, given that thirty years of success and the portfolio and the reputation for delivery that you've got would look to not lose that reputation. So they'd almost play it safe. Whereas you're still looking to play to win, to take risks, to put that great name on the line. So how do you mitigate against the two of playing not to lose and instead focusing on playing to win? Well, I think you mitigate by ensuring that when you, you know, when you sign up to do something like, like this, you know, it isn't just you. I'm one person and there are like 23,000 other people that work for Aviva. One of the key mitigants for me is having the best team around you. So, you know, the first thing, and I've changed the vast majority of my executive team, you know, like 12 out of 14 in two years. And I think you do have to have the best people that you believe give you the best chance to win. And then what you hope is that they then bring in, you know, the best people that they give them the chance to win. And some of those people have come from in inside the organization and some of them have come from outside the organization. But I think having that ability to identify who is going to be on this journey with me through the tough times and through the good times, that's a leadership thing, which I think over 30 years, you do develop that sort of, you know, sense of who's good and who's not. So give us a masterclass on, on how you develop that then. What do you go for to, uh, as a team member? So I think it depends on what you're looking for in the team. So at any one point in time, of course, the team is in a different state of flex. But at the very, very beginning, you're looking to fill your core roles. I mean, you know, the things that are going to make the biggest difference to the outcome. And then you can, no compromise. You, know, you have to have the best people into those roles. So for me, that was the CEO roles of running the divisions of the business and making sure that those people were absolutely brilliant and, you know, and getting on with doing that, making the tough decisions very, very quickly and early on that you have to do that. By the way, I should have said, attitude over anything else. It's about behavior. Even attitude over ability? Yes. Capability, I would say. Yes. Because I think, you know, there's a very old fashioned hire for attitude, train for skill. You have to have the right attitude because I do not want to work with people who are poorly behaved or just can't do it. I mean, obviously, you have to have some capability. If you're the finance director, then you probably have to do know quite a bit about numbers. But really, you know, it is about have you got the right core values and behaviors to be able to do a good job? And then you build out from there. And I would say, you know, it is only now, two years in, that I've got the team in the place where I really want it to be. 
And, you know, I can remember within the first three months, you know, an, an external saying to me, well, you're a bit slow. You haven't changed much of your team yet. And I, I, and I was like, yeah, give me a chance, right? I mean, you know, these things are, you have to be thoughtful about it. But also the bigger the organization, the more difficult it is to get that right. You know, in a smaller organization, you can do it pretty quickly. But in a bigger organization, you have to be more thoughtful about what's required. You mentioned their uh, values and behaviors. What are the values and behaviours that you're looking for? I hate anything where it's all about a me, me, me. It is about teams. So I call it one of either here. So, you know, it's about you may be in the life company or you may be in the general insurance company. But when you join my team as Exco, you have to think about what's best for the group. And not many people have that because some people can be really successful and they can be really good at winning, but to the detriment of everybody else. And, you know, that's not good when you're running a group. I, I think also there is the, um, the the sort of feeling around community that it isn't just about the profit. It's more around the balance of colleagues around, the, you know, the role we play in the community um, and the role we pay, play externally. So you can't just be, want to win for Aviva. You've also got to win for insurance. You've got to win for Norwich. You've got to win for York. You've got to win for all the places where we've got big presence. So th th there's, there's also that. And then I think there's some emotional intelligence, you know, having that ability to sit in the team and understand what the hell is going on. <laughs> because there's often a lot of politics going on around any any room. I think that's also really important to me. And I, I just want to pick up on one other thing because lots of people struggle with making changes. They particularly struggle with removing people from a team that they don't think are right for that team. And, you know, you've changed 12 of your 14 senior team members. That's, I don't know, rough mass, 90% change, right? How have you delivered that to not just make the change that Aviva needs, but to make the change that also sort of protects them? How do you go about having those conversations with people? It is the most difficult thing. I mean, there's no doubt about that. I mean, it does get easier. I, I mean, I, I probably shouldn't say that. It does get easier the more you've done it because, you know, you think about, you know, what the best way of delivering the news is. But quite often when you're having the conversation with people, they already know. They already know because they can see the way the business is moving. They can see the way the strategy is developing and they can often see they're not going to be happy in that strategy because you've got to remember this is a two, it is a two way process. You know, I'm making a decision that I think I want this sort of person for the team, but they're also making the decision that they don't want to be, they don't, you know, they don't agree with the strategy or they don't, they don't feel they want to be part of that journey. So quite often by the time you sit down and have the conversation, Pete, you're in a good place. Um, you know, it's very rarely that you're delivering a news to somebody when they've no clue that that news is coming. I have to say, you know, that that's not often the case. And then it's about elegance, and it's about how do you do that in a way that you know keeps everybody that they, you know, it's it's good for them and it's good for the organisation. So, can I ask you, Amanda, about a question that we often get asked from listeners on this about the managing of sort of your maverick or your superstar talents? Because when you were describing this attitude over behaviour, like, I think most people can understand that, that that's preferable. But how would you deal with somebody that's delivering great results for you, but isn't doing it in the right way, demonstrating those values and behaviours that you demand? So first of all, I think, you know, when you say delivering, if they're not delivering and, and the values, then they're not delivering. Because so the way that I measure the scorecard of the performance here is we do look at the financials. We also look at the customer outcomes, but we also look is somebody delivering on the, against the values. And every one of those is assessed. Right. So, you know, it could be a delivering, you know, it's usually a top line or profitability. 
So first of all, you have the conversation, which is, you know, look, I love what you're doing. The results are absolutely brilliant, but you know, you can't do that. You can't do it that way. And sometimes just even that conversation of, oh, right, I hadn't realized that it was having that impact on other people. Because quite often, honestly, people do just, they just bury their head in the sand and they just say, oh, I'm going to ignore that. I'm going to pretend that that's not happening. You, you know, you can do that for so long, but ultimately then your own credibility is shot to pieces. Because I can be on here going, it's all about values. And if my team can say, well, I listened to that podcast, Amanda, but you've got two people in your team that you let that behavior happen. That's just not acceptable. So I think you have the conversation. Then ultimately, honestly, if the behaviors are not right, you do have to deal with it. It's tough. So it sounds the way that you're describing it, that you could almost say that a big part of your role as a leader is to be a coach. What are the best coaching questions that you could advise our listeners they could ask that gets people both delivering results and doing it in the right way? Yeah. Gosh, I've never thought about it like that because I would say almost every conversation I have is a coaching conversation, really, you know, internally, um, because you, you, you're always thinking about how can you improve the performance. So I, I, I usually always start with, okay, what's going well? Then you move into the, okay, what so what would you do differently if you look back over the last six months? And quite often people will, you know, they will focus on the things that they want to focus on. But you then, you know, you know, you've done your notes, you know what you want to get to. And eventually you can get the conversation into the place where you want to get to. And then then you agree an action plan of what you're going to do differently going forward. I mean, it seems really simple. Even listening to it, I think probably that's a bit simplistic. But, you know, just allowing people the time to to just talk and those performance conversations are really, really key to me. And um, and then I'll write that up and I'll and, and I'll send it to, to to them and say, you know, this is what this is what we talked about. And so we can think we can think about it then the next time we meet. And I meet with my ex my ex-co once a week. Um, you know, in terms of a, as an ex-co we meet. Uh, so those even the team perform coaching conversations all the way around, not just, you know, me coaching, them coaching, me and everybody. And then the the performance, you know, we have a monthly one-to-one. So who coaches you then? So I have had lots of coaches. Um, I, I mean, you know, if I think back through my career, you know, you've had the informal coach and the formal coach, haven't you? And, you know, my very first um, sort of boss that had a big impact on me, I can remember walking into his room in Leeds and he was lying on the floor. And <laughs> I said to him, uh, he was called Alan Dewey and he'll know if he listens to this. And I said, what are you doing? He said, I'm blue sky thinking. <laughs> Hey, and but he was a brilliant. He was a totally brilliant coach because he he constantly pushed pushed me and pushed for performance, encouraged me to do my MBA, and you know he was he was brilliant. And then there have been subsequent other people that I've worked with or known that I've turned to for you know for for coaching advice, and they make a big impact on, on you. But you know I would also say everybody that I work with, I, I always treat every conversation as that. What am I going to learn from this conversation? And I think that's. You have to go into every conversation like that. If you go in with an arrogance of this, this organization's perfect and I'm doing everything right, you're not going to be successful. So tell us your best learning then. Oh gosh, I mean, there's been like so many, hasn't there? Give us more than one then. We'll we'll take as many as you want to oh, deliver. Okay, 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 right. The point is, Amanda, there's real value for people in hearing you yeah. talk in this way, you know, yeah. and then it gets passed to you and then it gets passed on to hundreds of thousands of people on here, which I think is just of benefit. One of my very early learnings around communication, um, I mean, and again, it may sound really simple, is that you sort of assume that when you do a communication that it gets cascaded in the same way that you've given that communication through the organization. 
And I, I soon learned that actually that does not happen. Um, so by the time that it gets to, you know, the actual people who front up to customers, if you're not careful, it's nothing like the communication that it started with. So one of the things I've always done, you know, for the last sort of 10, 12 years is ensure that I do either like a roadshow or a very big town halls on a regular basis so I can actually deliver my own communication to the business so that the business can hear from me what I'm worried about, what I'm really pleased about, what I really need from them. You know, I think that's one of my key learnings, which I, I would never not do. And even during COVID, when I couldn't get out to the business, I would do virtual town halls, you know, and I would I would call into customer service teams and and listen to them. The other thing I think is you have to listen, be your own customer. Um, and and we have we've not cracked this at Aviva yet, but one of my key learnings is you know you think because the data you get you're getting is is a certain way, and then you sort of because I'm I've got quite a high profile now on LinkedIn and Twitter, Twitter and various other things, people will cl- complain directly to me. And I get these complaints and I'm like, really? You know, that's sort of not, doesn't really stack with what I'm hearing. So being your own customer, and I say this to the Exco all the time and they get sort of sick, sick of me saying it, allows you to be, to experience what it's like to be a customer and good or good or bad. So, you know, you need to know what it's like for your customers dealing with your organization. And you can do that by being your own customer, by also listening to the people on the front line. You know, never distance yourself so much. You're in your bloody ivory tower, so far away from everything else that's going on that you do not know what's actually happening in your own organization. I mean, look, just a bit about reviews. I've had many bosses I've never had a review with. They've never told me how I'm doing. And, And just that regular review you know, sitting down with the team, talking about how we are doing as a team or how we are doing individually. That's really, really, really important. I'm also interested to know um, about what you learn in in the difficult times. You know, if we we look at the trajectory of your career, it was an upward trajectory, really impressive, making moves. There was a period where you went to Zurich, wasn't there, which didn't work out. And I'm interested really in, without going into specifics, obviously, why it was hard for you, but also the importance for people to hear you talk about the importance of leaving behind things that are not good for you or aren't working out for you, which can sometimes be the harder decision because it, it's scary to walk away. So my career has not always been an upward trajectory and it's not always been plain sailing. And I say this, you know, to the graduates here and to the apprentices here, that I have made mistakes and I've made big mistakes. Moving on quickly from your mistakes is, I think, really important if you know you've got it wrong. And Zurich was a good example of that. I thought that going to Zurich was going to be a really important step on my on my upward career. And I think it was a fantastic lesson for me that culture is everything. And if you if you can't fit into that culture, then, you know, if that organization isn't going to change, then you need to make the change yourself. And honestly, I left and I did not know what I was going to do. But being brave to make the right decision when you know it's not right. I say it all the time to people. You know, I think they think I'm joking, but I've made the decisions. I've made those mistakes. And it's important to make mistakes and learn from them. So tell us about bravery then. You just referenced it there. Like, I think of all the things that I've read about your career and your background, Amanda, is the bravery that you have to speak truth to power, to call out behaviours that are unacceptable, even when you like maybe you're compromised or maybe it's going to cost you tell us a little bit around how you develop that 
Yeah, well, I've always liked to speak out. Um, I've I've never been shy about speaking out if I believe that it fits for the right thing. I think that starts with my background, honestly. I, I, I do. Um, but also, you know, you sort of see people bitching and moaning about things and you're like, well, tell tell them, you know, tell them what you want differently. Speak up, speak up. So I've I've done that. It doesn't always work. Honestly, it's, some people do not want to hear the truth. They definitely do not. Um, but I do genuinely believe that, you know, if you can look, if you want to look yourself in the mirror, if you want to have and say you've got integrity, then you've got to hold yourself to account. And sometimes it's painful and sometimes it doesn't, you know, it doesn't really work, but you've got to do it. And, you know, I'm I'm sure you might be referring to the AGM, um, which happened uh, this year where these men think they can say this stuff. You know, it's not acceptable. But, you know, in the heat of the moment, you don't always see it. So what was it that they did actually say? Because I think it's helpful for people to understand that how it can often be subtle and maybe insidious, what people say, rather than directly abusive. Yeah, so there was, um, you know, I think there were there were sort of three comments, that, and it's all on record because it's recorded. So, you know, there's no sort of getting away from it. The, fir- the first was just that they were very, that there, there was a comment which was, um, they, they were very pleased that there were a number of women on the board because women are very good at housekeeping. And, um, and you know, that that was, that you know, that was a good thing. So that was the first comment that sort of set the tone. And then another comment was, um, you know, um, that I should, I should wear trousers and that, you know, I was no, uh, they referred to the previous CEO that I was no, you know, whoever this previous C- CEO was. And then the, the third one was that I wasn't the man for the job. Um, and so, you know, these were, these were comments, which honestly, you know, you're in the middle of an AGM and an AGMs are, are very strange experiences. If you've ever experienced one, you know, you literally are on a stage and you are thinking about every question that can come at you. You do not expect those comments to come at you. And then it's only when I got on a plane to Canada and landed in Canada and thought, do you know what, actually, and my, my phone was sort of pinging because the FT were in the room. The FT were actually in the room and they had picked up on those comments. And it was like, that's just not on. It's actually not on. You know, I'm, I'm the government's women in finance champion. And it, um, I think I've had a pretty successful career and actually I think I've done a pretty good job at Aviva and that was not acceptable. See, because what I was interested though, was, like, I remember an incident from many years ago in my own career when somebody made a racist comment in my company. And I remember my my reaction was to be shocked, first of all, and, and then almost wonder, am I being set up for some kind of joke or, you know, was it intended with humour and like I was trying to process lots of different confusing thoughts before I reached that conclusion of actually that's not acceptable and needs to be challenged. And that's what I'm wondering on that stage when you were listening to that, what were the kind of thought processes that were going on for you? Well, I think the, the, the first process is, you know, how, so how dare they, you know, you know, what, what, what are these people that they're sort of making this comment? That's the first point. And then you leave the stage because, you know, you're in, we're only up there for like 45, 50 minutes. And then you walk into a room and obviously there's loads of my team were there preparing questions. And, and they walked in and they went, that was out of order. You know, it was their immediate reaction was that was completely out of order. 
and you're like, yes, it was, it was out of order. Then, you know, you think, okay, well, what can I do about it? Cause you're off the stage at that point, aren't you? And, and, and then the, obviously the FT picked it up and you sort of think, actually, I can turn this into something good. So by making the, the sort of LinkedIn post and, and writing about it in the way that I did, I think that was right. But, but Damon, just to go back to your point, there have been many times in my career where I've been in that position where you sort of sit and you think they didn't mean it. Did they mean it? Okay. And of course, by the time you've really thought it through, you're, you're sort of like, you, you've moved on and something else has happened. But we, we, are, we now think a lot here, and I'm sure all organizations do about that, about tackling it in the moment and basically saying, actually, I don't know what you meant by that, but I, I actually felt quite offended by that. I don't think that that was acceptable. And we've done quite a lot of work with our teams uh, around that to make sure that we get the, the right behavior. And we will not not get it right. Definitely not 100% of the time. But I think we're getting better at, at calling it out when you, when you see it. And are you encouraged by the reaction of, of the younger generation? I mean, I've got a very young daughter. Florence. Little Florence. She's only nine years old. I know you've got an older daughter. And I know that you've, you know, you've spoken about your daughter's reaction. Are you encouraged by the reaction of the younger generation where, you know, maybe you had in some ways become almost immune to some of the sexism because it had been commonplace, whereas it just simply will not be accepted by the next generation. It's kind of our role, I guess, to, to ensure that is the case. Well, 100%, Jake. I mean, for the likes of Florence and for my daughters, Rhiannon and Caitlin, you know, this has to be fixed. Because it's been going on for too long and it's been just seen as being acceptable for too long. I went home that evening and we sort of, uh, you know, we, 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 we talked about what I'd done that day and they were just like, what? <laughs> and their reaction was, well, what did you do? Did you take, did you kick them out? <laughs> yeah, that was, the, that was that's their the reaction. Ronda. Was like, that's the Ronda genetics. Yeah, I mean, that's the yeah. Ronda theory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's like, we'll go, we'll get them. Um, but, you know, it was just like, that's, that, that's really, uh, you know, they couldn't believe it because they just will not accept that. And thank goodness they will not accept that. Uh, but I would say it's universal, whether it's male or female, you know, the response to it has been, you know, completely that it's unacceptable from other chairs in the FTSE 100 to CEOs from Australia and America that have all sort of reached out to say, you know, maybe this is a bit of a turning point that this is just simply not acceptable anymore. But there are still only nine female chief execs in the UK's top 100 companies. There are no women of colour at all. So this still is very much a work in progress. What would you say to, to those I suppose the first thing, I was going to say, what would you say to young female business leaders? But what would you say to male business leaders about how they and we can also help fix this problem? Yeah, I mean, so I think actually, I think the number might be eight, Jake. It, it's just totally unacceptable, isn't it? That we sort of sit here today and I, I like to turn it on its head. So if there were 92 women and eight men, what would the conversation be? It would be more action oriented. And I think the problem is there's a lot of talking about it. Everybody recognizes that something needs to be done. Everybody does the easy things. You know, you do the, the, the unconscious bias training. You do the, you know, you have sponsorship programs, mentoring programs, female leadership programs, all of that. But the numbers do not change. And, you know, in fact, this year in women in financial services firms, the percentage of senior women has not moved at all. It was moving at 1% a year. This year it hasn't moved at all. So, you know, the conversation has to be 
whether you're a, a, a male leader, a female leader, whether you're in, what are we going to do to fix what the core issues are? And the core issues are within the pipeline within the organization. The fact is that too many women leave and leave the organizations. That's critical caring points, whether it's caring for parents or caring for children. And when they come back, they don't come back at the same level or they don't come back in a job share that they can keep, you know, that that same level. They come back for more junior roles and they then do not progress from there. So making sure that you look at your talent much earlier on and you identify who the talented people are and that you've earmarked them from a very early stage and making sure you manage that through is absolutely critical. I've done some work with with Bain on this. We've written a Women in Finance Blueprint, which basically goes through retention, recruitment, you know, culture, all the things that brilliant organizations do to make sure that things improve. But genuinely, if at the rate that we're improving now, we'll never get there for Florence. We won't get there for Florence at this point. It will still be the same. So let me flip the question then and ask you to answer it from a different perspective, Amanda. What advice would you give to a nine-year-old Amanda in the Rhonda Valley that would make her believe that she could reach the status that you have? I do the speakers for schools um, and I and I go back to schools in, you know, in places like the Ronda and in Newport and Bridgend and to speak to to, to the kids because I, I think honestly they need to see more role models. I don't think it would matter what I would say to a nine-year-old because a nine-year-old is, you know, hopefully a happy, go lucky, not thinking about anything. But once you once you get to the comprehensive school, your secondary school level, there are no role models. There are no people that they can look at and say, oh, that person's like me. So when I go in and I say, I went to a school like this and I show a picture of Trochi Comprehensive School and I had these results, which actually weren't that good. And I've worked my way through my career and my grandparents were minors. They've all got their mouths open and they're like, oh, right. Because business is also seen as being like a negative thing. So you, you can be a doctor or you can be a lawyer or you can be an accountant, but who, who celebrates being a CEO or being a successful entrepreneur? I think there are just too few role models. And I think that's what schools need. They need to see people like that. And, you know, we are in, in Norwich, we're about to do some work with local businesses and, you know, looking at how can we put our own people and local doing T-levels together to just get a sense of what it's like to work for an insurance company, that it's not boring. It's actually bloody exciting. And there's lots of really good things that happen. But people don't look at an insurance company. They think of just meerkats on television. You know, they don't think of all the brilliant things that we do. And, you know, we've got to get better at that. Brilliant. I love the passion. And you you sit and talk to us, Amanda, and you seem so confident and you seem so centred. And, and I'm sure that in the role you're in, it's not always the case. Can we talk briefly about imposter syndrome because I think there may well be some young ladies listening to this going well I wish I didn't have my imposter syndrome or I wish I had Amanda's confidence what's your relationship like with imposter syndrome look I mean hundreds of times I sit here and I was in Wales at the weekend with my mum and dad you know and uh, we were sort of driving through the valley and I dropped my kids off there for a couple of days and then you come back here and, and I'm doing this podcast with you and honestly my first question was when when they asked me to do this why are they asking me to do this well, why do you want to hear from me? And I, I feel like that all the time. You know, I'll go and we, I'm on the, the Prime Minister's Business Council. And, you know, you go to that and you're thinking, what, what am I doing here? Why am I here? 
that's only a sort of like 10 seconds and then you snap into it and you think I'm here for a reason because I've got something to add because I am from a different background because I have been successful because I I know what you know I know what good looks like and I know I can help and I'm prepared to speak up but look I think everybody has that I think men and women it's not it's not just something that that that, that women suffer with but but girls girls and women particularly you know the number of young talented women that I speak to at Aviva and they are just all they need is to be told that they're good enough to do the next thing. Oh, that's all it takes is somebody to say, why don't you apply for that job? You've got all the right skills to be able to do it, all the capability to be able to do it. Why wouldn't you put yourself forward? And then a little push and that, and then you get people going. That's all it takes. Which in part answers my question then, Amanda, of I'm interested in how your parents have responded to your success and, and that community that you came from. So how do they react now when they see you sort of strolling up to 10 Downing Street to meet the Prime Minister or coming on podcasts like this? And equally, what did they say that you felt was important to put you in that position? I can't possibly repeat what my father would say about going to number 10. (laughs) (laughs) Not on here anyway. Um, But uh, I think my mum and dad, you know, we don't talk about it, honestly. They'll say you work too hard. Um, but but they've always been it's about the person that you are being there for your family being there for, for the you know the people that you work with we really don't talk about it that much i mean i know they're proud of me because you know i'll do if i do a radio 4 interview or i'm on tv i'll always get a lovely text from my dad saying oh that was really you know that was really good um which is lovely i mean and honestly that's the one you look out for it is the one you look out for which is just you know oh you were really you know i, I thought you spoke really well there um but we try to, it's more centered than that. You know, I mean, my sister's really successful. She's a head teacher in, in Leicester in, a, in an inner city school. I think they've just done a brilliant job of bringing us up without any of the nonsense, really. They just, we just know what's right and what's wrong. And when you are as successful as you have been and, you, and you've achieved the things that you have, I think sometimes people think that all of the thrill comes from business. But actually, maybe seeing your children grow up, holding your daughter's hand when they're young or spending time with your family. I think it's important to remind people that that is the, that's the true joy, I think, in life, isn't it? Well, that's what you do it for. Do you live to work or work to live? I love being with my family. Um, I lo- also love my Peloton bike. You know, my the, the deepest joy for me, honestly, is that at five o'clock this morning, I was on that bike doing 45 minutes of that, which I just love so much. And it just gives me that energy, which is outside of work. I can't think about anything else when I'm on there. It's like, You've just got to beat your, your you know, what, what you did in your last ride. And and, and that, that's what that's about. And it's not about Aviva. So, yes, I, I think I love that. I love spending time with my family. You know, I went to see Dear Evan Hansen in, in, in London last night. It felt like skiving off on a school night. It was something that had been sort of hangover from COVID, which my husband and I went. But these are things that I just love doing. And you've got to enjoy your life because, uh, you know, as my old boss once said to me, you know, nobody, you know, when they're lying in their coffin says I should have worked harder. So are you out of bed at five every day? Yeah, most days, not the weekend. So when did you decide to adopt the early starts? Has that been a lifelong thing? Oh, always. Yeah. My, I mean, my mum gets up like four o'clock in the morning. She she literally, she cleans the house before everybody else is up. I mean, she's just unbelievable. And even today, at sort of nearly 80 years of age, that's what she does. So interesting. Um, we've reached the point, Amanda, where we run through some quick fire questions. The first one is, what are the three non-negotiable 
behaviours that you and the people around you must buy into? First of all, about behaviour. And, you know, I will not tolerate um, bullying or bad behaviour. The second is bad news needs to be delivered early. Do not like surprises on, on bad news. And the third is operating in a silo. I really will not tolerate the the team operating in a silo. Those are my sort of non-negotiables. Just pick up on a couple of those. How do you stop teams working in a silo? It's about the group scorecard. It's about objectives. So having having group objectives and calling out if you can see that one team is doing something which is clearly to the detriment of another team or not for the greater good of the, of the group. And, you know, I, I've always been very focused on that. And delivering bad news early, why does that matter? Oh my gosh, because then you can because then you've got more brains that can help to, to fix the problem. You know, I mean, you do not you do not want to have a late late. I mean, let me tell you, in financial services, you definitely do not want late bad news. You want to know if there's a start of a problem because often there's lots of things you can do to fix it. And I always think that you know, two brains are better than one. And if you, the more the more brains that are working on something, there's a chance to actually get a better outcome. What's been the biggest sacrifice you've made for high performance, and would you make it again? I think there's constant sacrifices, but you know that you have to make the sacrifice around family and and home to some extent. In that, you know, my husband gave up his job. I would say he's actually made the biggest sacrifice, not me, because he gave up his job when my second daughter was born to look after the family, because we recognised that we couldn't both do it. We didn't want to both do it, and it was important that you know that somebody was there for um, for for the girls. And so, I think that you then have to accept the sacrifices that you're not going to be home for every play, you're not going to be there for every parents' evening. You're there for the important ones, and you sort of have to compromise and uh, a bit on that. But that that that's definitely a sacrifice. You know, you don't see everything um, that if you're a control freak like freak like me that you want to. <laughs> and would you do it again? Yes. What is your biggest strength and what is your greatest weakness? I think my biggest strength is basically just being able to push through things and relentlessness, you know, keeping going and making sure that I'm sort of, you know, driving the best out of people and out of the organisation. Oh, you'd have to ask other people about my biggest weakness. I think sometimes I know taking feedback's quite hard. Taking feedback is hard, even though you like to listen. We're taking personal feedback can be difficult. Where were you? Where are you? And where are you going? Ooh. Where I was, I think, was um, very happy with what I'd accomplished until I came here. And now I absolutely want more. I want more. I want Aviva to be more successful than it is today. So where I am today is we've reached the end of phase one. I And, and I feel on my particular journey here that I've reached the end of phase one. In terms of where I'm going, it is making sure that we we are absolutely at our absolute best. Um, and, and I don't think much further beyond than that, uh, because I think if you can, or, you know, people that say they have 15-year career plans and all that, nah, I don't believe that. I really don't. I think you've got to see what the opportunities are and sort of enroll with them. So how far ahead do you plan in uh, your career? Not really at all, honestly. Uh, I mean, you know, I think you have to be good at what you do. I think too often, you know, when you speak to really ambitious people, they're, they're more concerned about what they're going to do next and doing a good job of what they're doing now. My, my fundamental belief is if you do a good job of what you're doing now, the next thing will come. It will come. And, you may, and it may come from lots of, you know, strange places, but it will definitely come. And the final question, what's your one golden rule for living a high-performance life? I suppose in many ways, your, your one final message you'd like to leave our listeners with. Always do what you say you're going to do. So many times people just, you know, 
they say you're going to do something and then you can see them even before they've left your office, you know, they're going to do something different. You know, you know, they're not going to, but I think if you do what you say you're going to do for your customers, for your people, for your family, for yourself, um, you can't go far wrong. Fantastic. I've really enjoyed that. You know, there's a, there's such a clarity to the way that you talk and the way that you think. And uh, I, I, maybe I'm wrong, but I get the impression that you've got more energy and more drive and more desire than, than, than ever, you know? Oh, feels absolutely. Like, yeah, no, does absolutely. it feel like you're right at the start of the journey, doesn't it still? It does. No, it really does. I mean, because I think you look at the journey in phases, right? It's like we have an electric car and, you know, basically you get to one charging point and then you start again, don't you? It's like you've filled up and you're raring to go. And I think it's a bit like that. Amanda, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you. It's been really lovely to talk with you both. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Oh, it's been a real privilege. Thank you. Thanks for sharing so candidly. Damien. Jake. Well, I've really enjoyed that conversation because as much as, you know, you speak to Amanda and she has real sort of conviction in the way she speaks and real clarity and she seems so centred and grounded, it all comes from starting like everybody else in a really normal life with a really normal upbringing. You know, she wasn't born into this world of business or anything. She's had to find her way through. And it's a brilliant, brilliant reminder for anyone listening to that episode that it's there for you if you want to go and find it. Yeah, definitely. I love the fact that that, I, that you could draw a straight line from that girl growing up in the Rhonda Valley to the chief exec that we're speaking to today. You know, um, it's that great line from, I think it was Ian Brown that said, it's not where you're from, it's where you're at. But I think the idea of being able to acknowledge where you are from and the lessons that she learned in that community and from her, what sounds like brilliant parents and grandparents is still rippling and playing effect today as she heads up 25,000 people organisation. I mean, it's an incredibly important and prestigious job, but she's still, sadly, in 2022, having to fight against, you know, sexism in the workplace. And I was thinking while we were talking to her, you know, what can we do better? And I think the key really is is for men to make sure that we're real allies to women in the workplace and st speak up for them, stand up for them, be alongside them, call things out when when we don't think things are right. Yeah, you know, that Martin Luther King quote, that injustice anywhere is injustice everywhere. And I think that when we sort of turn a blind eye to it and think, well, it doesn't affect me or it's not something that particularly I feel strongly about, it then allows it to flourish and blossom. And I think, like you say, it doesn't, I like the idea of what Amanda had said about make a distinction between the impact felt and the impact intended. So you can say to somebody, this might not have been what you intended to do, but this is the impact it had on me because nobody can deny that if we feel that it was out of order or it crossed the line. That's our judgment. And therefore, we give people the, the chance to reflect and to climb down from it and maybe reconsider without feeling that we're attacking the individual. Yeah. And sadly, it remains so prevalent. You know, I, I remember on air standing up for one of our female uh, pundits a couple of years ago, a lady called Karen Carney. And I still get every week criticism from people for doing that. And it was like... Well, she was, she was, she criticised a football club, but actually the criticism was nothing to do with football. They just loads of misogynistic, sexist abuse came her way. And I basically said on air, you know, you can have an opinion, but as soon as it crosses the line into sexism or into, you know, specifically trying to offend or upset somebody, then it goes too far. And still people fail to see that. So I think it's a reminder that this is... um. This is a work in progress, very much a work in progress. And like Amanda said, I thought there was nine foot C CEOs that are female. There's only eight. I mean, it's like, that's it's mad. 
Yeah, but like you say, I like that um, example that Amanda used where she flipped it and said if it was the other way around and it was 92 women running FTSE companies and just eight men, people would notice it and they'd therefore comment and demand some kind of action from it. So if we're going to create a world of where people feel that diversity is a, is a strength, where inclusivity is seen as something that can actually aid performance... I think we all have a part to play in challenging it, calling it out and doing what we can to facilitate it. And yet, you know, despite the issues like the sexism problem that she had, you know, when it was her first ever AGM for for Aviva, which is a shocking story, she remains someone who is using all of her years of experience to drive that business forward. And I know that she really wants to be judged like anyone else in business on making business a success, but still doing it with a heart and with some feeling. Yeah, and I think it comes down to that idea that she's playing to win. She's play, She's not playing not to lose. And I think that comment that she made around, she's had 30 years of success in business, but she's taking on challenges. She's stretching herself because she backs herself to be able to do it better than previous incumbents, to be able to leave a legacy is, to me, a really powerful message for anyone listening to this of, you know, look for what we can do and what we can achieve rather than worry about the consequences of not delivering. Yeah, agreed. An inspiring lady who uh, who's doing great things in the right way. Yeah, brilliant. It was a real privilege to speak to her. Well, thank you so much to Amanda for being so open, honest and vulnerable in this conversation. Thanks to PwC for wanting to bring these conversations to you. And as always, the biggest thanks of all goes to you at home for sharing this podcast among your community. Please continue to spread the learnings you're taking from this series. I would love you to either put this on your WhatsApp or mention it to somebody at work. I would also love it if you can rate and review this podcast. It's really the best way that you can support us. Thanks to the whole team, Finn, Hannah, Will, Eve and Gemma. And remember, there is no secret, guys. It's all there for you. So chase world-class basics. Don't get high on your own supply. Remain humble, curious and empathetic. And we'll see you very soon. 